Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode number three for Antho for the Homies, and today we got a very, very special guest. Um, it's actually a really cool cat that I hit it off with right away. Um, met him through Instagram, actually. Um, shout out to the homie Fern, but the homie Fern reposted this podcast, Antho for the Homies, and I got a message, and it was from uh, John Uyoa. And um, it was super dope because he was like, yo, I'm an anthropologist, too. And uh, I do some research and I work on some lowriders. So uh, without any further ado, I want to give the man a chance to introduce himself. Please introduce yourself, John, and please give us uh, introduce yourself. Say your name, where you're from, um, and then a little bit about uh, your current interests, please. Right on. My name is John Uyoa. First of all, thanks for being here. Oh, and uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm used to answer. I'm used to being in your chair, but sorry, man. <laughs> it's all um, good. Um, anyway, thanks for having me is what I meant to say. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, but yeah, man, you know, my name is John Uyoa. I was born and raised in Modesto, California. And I've been living in the Bay Area since 1998. Um, first moved to San Francisco, lived in San Francisco for many, many years. And then um, from there, kind of, you know, slid up and down the peninsula. So I lived in Redwood City for a little while and then South San Francisco. And now my family and I reside in San Mateo, California, just, you know, just South of San Francisco. Yep. 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 And, yeah. And so, um, you know, I am an anthropologist. I'm a cultural anthropologist. Um, my degree is in cultural anthropology with a, an emphasis in visual anthropology. And, um, you know, my work and my research and my life revolves around low riding. Um, I kind of went, you know, went, what can I do with this? And um, I went, you know, I'm going to make this work for me. And I'm going to just, you know, come hell or high water, no matter what, caution to the wind, you know, whatever with the naysayers or the traditionalists, I'm going to do, I'm going to do low riding. And um, a lot of that had a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was reading a lot of academic work on low writing that just didn't sit well with me. I just didn't like it. It just, it was so, you know, from the, the edict, right? The outsider's perspective that I went, no, man, we need to tell our story from, this needs to be told from the insider's perspective. Yeah, you know? and so hell that's, yeah. That's really what keeps me motivated and drives my work, so. Yeah, that's that's sick, dude, because, you know, I'm an anthropologist, uh, obviously, as well, <laughs> Anto for the homies, and I'm into low riding, too. So to meet somebody who shares my same passion, like, it's pretty badass. I think it's part of the reason why we hit it off right away, right? Like, we talked on the phone, and uh, John and I talked for, I don't know, it was like maybe like 45 minutes or something, and it was just this conversation that just flowed, you know, so organically. So he said a lot there, brother. He said, you know, where you grew up, and you said that your interest is, is low riding, and you got into it primarily because you um, were reading these things and outsiders were telling the story of low riding. So what are some of those things that the outsiders were saying that made you be like, nah, that's bullshit. That's wrong. Like, you know, well, what, go ahead. Well, let me, let me just clarify just so that everybody understands, you know, I mean, low, low in my life, low riding is like, those are some of my earliest childhood memories, low riding, you know, um, Car culture in Modesto, California is huge. It always has been. I mean, yep. you know, George, George Lucas's film, American Graffiti, mm -hmm. which is all about, you know, youth and cars, um, you know, that was his autobiographical sketch. He was he was from Modesto, you oh, know, right. and then he went on to, you know, mega fame and stardom with Star Wars. Wow. But 
but car culture has always been, you know, part of my life. Um, independently of, you know, whether I had a car or not, you know, it's like you literally, you grow up around it, you see it, you are experiencing it, watching it. You know, my brother's 11 years older than me, mm-hmm. you know, um, all of his, and my sister's nine years older than me. So, you know, his friends will come around with their cars, you know, and of course, you know, they were interested in my sister. So they were around. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, it would fascinate me. So I would have, I, my brother had a 60, my brother had a 64 Impala and a 62 Impala. Sweet. You know, um, yeah, my first car was a 1965 Impala wagon. Sweet. Um, and then I had a, and then I had a 73 Caprice. Um, and then I had a 51 Chevy and then I had a 48 fleet line. And now I'm working on a, a 73 Buick Riviera. So, you know, it, I didn't, I didn't get into low riding because of anthropology. Mm-hmm. What I did is I was able to dovetail both of those things to work together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's badass. And um, your younger influences, were they always low riders or were they like muscle cars or imports or it was just low riding? Never, I never got into muscle. I, I'm, I'm still not into muscle, you oh, know, yeah. or, motor, or motorcycles. Um, it's always, as far as car culture goes, uh-huh. always riding i always thought bugs were cool i still want <laughs> I still want one yeah um i want to i want a bug to make to build it as a low rider you yeah know? yeah yeah a beetle um, so a vw beetle for yeah. those non-car folks that are maybe right. listening right and so so i just wanted to clarify that point that sure. i didn't it's not like you know i suited up as an anthropologist and said well now i need a slick topic so because some of the work reads like that you know like you know I needed a dissertation topic. So I don't know. I thought low writing was cool. And it's like, no, nah, man, because then, you know, 250 pages of your book reads like that. You yeah, know? yeah, totally. You know, like, like, you know, literally like you beamed down, extracted the information and went to the lab, you know, and, yeah. um, and that's the part that, that trips me out. And that's why I love what you're doing, because this stuff should be accessible. You know what I mean? That, you know, I used to coach baseball with a guy who would say, hey, how's your class on rocks and bones going? You know, was like, <laughs> hey, you still teaching the kids about rocks and bones? And I'm like, man, that, you know, there people have such a huge misconception about what anthropology is. You know, everybody thinks that we're running away from big ass rocks, carrying bull whips, wearing a, a fedora, a bomber jacket and a fedora, you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. and um, and the reality is there are a lot of people, I mean, for the most part, you know, the field is broad and a lot of people doing some very significant work, you know, mm-hmm. in different areas for different reasons. Totally. You know, so. Did you get, yeah. um, did you receive any pushback like in your academic career from older anthropologists talking about like, hey, dude, like anthropologists, we don't study lowriders, man. You need to study, you know, I don't know, bifacial recognition or something. Um. Actually, it was funny because like, like I told you kind of in our, in our initial phone call, uh-huh. you know, when I entered into the master's program at San Francisco State in anthropology, it was to pursue uh, African-based religion in the Americas, you know, um, Santeria in the Caribbean and throughout, you know, uh, the African diaspora, diasporic religions, you know, mm-hmm. Santeria, Ifa, um, Palo Mayombe. Voodoo, uh, would voodoo in, be one of those? In, in in Haiti and New Orleans, Udun, mm-hmm. um, and uh, in Brazil, Candomblé, Macumba, Umbanda. That's where I was headed with it. 
um, because I actually, my first master's degree is in Latin American history. Ah, so you got, two, you got two master's degree, brother. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Um, because anthropology was the degree that I always wanted, you know? And so when I got, when I got my master's in history, mm-hmm. the, the, it was 2004 and the California economy was terrible. I think there was one full-time history position in the entire state wow. at the community, at the community college level. It was rough. Wow. And, you know, and so then I went, now nah, I'm going to go back to school get the degree that I always wanted, which was anthropology. And I fell into the visual sequence because that was fast track. So my, my thinking was, I'm going to be able to, I want to be able to be more marketable teaching in the community college system. And with two master's degrees, that uh, would allow me to double dip. For sure. And, um, and so in 2007, when I came out with my second master's degree, the economy was worse. So <laughs> now what am I going to do? You know what I mean? And so, that's when I just started grinding it out. But so I entered the program under the the auspices of this African-based religion thing. And then I went, you know what? Nah, I'm not doing that. Everything you teach me, I'm going to filter through the lens of low writing. And they went, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do Sick. that. What, Sick. what are you going to do? Kick me out? <laughs> really? I'm in. And they already knew me. What are you going to do? Kick me out? And so I had the elev- elevator pitch. Like they gave me like two minutes to like, okay, go. Why, why should we let you stay? And I was like, globalization is a major theme of the program. And they've been low riding in Japan since the late 80s. And then it was like, boom, sold. You had us at Japan. Okay, do it. You know? But that was after they went, low riding in Japan? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. You know? and, I mean, there was no social media then. So or it was very, Small. very archaic mm-hmm. you know there were discussion boards discussion boards and chat rooms there mm-hmm. wasn't you know there weren't the, the MySpace hadn't even happened yet mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so let alone facebook and now instagram, instagram talk and all the rest you know and so um so yeah so it was cool because then like when i did my archaeology seminar mm-hmm. um my teacher was very supportive and this guy was a Gary Paul, Dr. Gary Paul was his name, is his name. Um, and he was a Mayan specialist. Oh. So this cat, this cat like knew how to read Mayan hieroglyphs and, you know, could, could do the thing. Yep. And I said, you know what? Pyramids are interesting, but I'm sure you're sick of reading about, you know, how many papers about pyramids have you read? Why not the car show as an archaeological site? I said, because archaeology, we're looking at the material, we're the material substance of human beings, right? Mm-hmm. So why not examine the car show as an archaeological field site? And he went, <laughs> yeah, yes, do it, do it. Yeah. And so, you know, so rather than, you know, talk about the pyramid, rather, you know, what does the period pyramid mean as a cultural expression? as historical preservation, as a cultural statement, as language, as a visual language on a trunk mural or on a hood mural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, 
that's what what I'm interested in. Yeah, that that's you know that's so beautiful, brother. That's so inspiring because uh, for those of you who cannot see, you know, uh, my buddy Johnny's got a flat build hat on. You know, are you wearing a Pendleton, brother? You know, you, you I, have. Yeah. I am because it's cold, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and you you know you have tattoos, and you're able to bridge the your love and your passion for low riding and legitimize it in the academic sector, right? And that is incredible because typically um you know and, and we'll get into this a little bit but you, you know um low riding has this connotation unfortunately of being associated in some circles with you know um crime like you mentioned uh, on that thing on your um podcast with fern or uh you know that only cholos drive low riders and so there's this and I would say that's that's sort of like a myth, right? <laughs> or you know, maybe you'd be able to explain it a lot more better, a lot more eloquently than I can. But can you talk a little bit about that, please? Man, that that's like five episodes right there, you know. Right, right. Well, I'll give you I'll give you the brief version. Okay. Right? I mean, you know, the the baddest car builders that I know. Mm-hmm. The I mean the baddest car builders that I know. It doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, um, you know, Tyler Poland, TP Customs up the road here, mm-hmm. or if you're talking about, you know, uh, my homie Junichi in Japan, uh, old 52 on Instagram, he has a, a shop called Paradise Road, or Cholo's Customs in Japan, <laughs> you know, about or you know my friends that have a, a lowrider collective in uh in sao paulo brazil these guys are the baddest car builders they they're they're more in, they're not interested in how crease down their pants are you know they're interested in making sure that that body line on the car is perfect Ooh. they're making sure that their weld is perfect you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. like they're not you know and 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 you know my findings you know i mean (laughs) (laughs) i can't even say with a straight face man it just sounds so like, like there needs to be elbow patches right here right uh, yeah yeah well i mean dude that's why i love it that's why i wanted to talk to you because of shit like this but continue continue <laughs> You know, my participant observation field work, which is me going to car shows and lowrider events here in the United States, in Japan, several in Brazil, mm. or just, you know, just cruising. Um, it's that mostly the people that are dressing the part mm-hmm. are spectators, mm. the enthusiasts, mm. right? Now, the, the you know, the old timers will tell you, and it's, this is well-documented, especially, especially like in the, in the late seventies that, you know, Los Angeles, Whittier Boulevard, it was hot. You know, things, things were, things were not like they are today, Mm, you know, most definitely, you know, there were the people that were low riders and there were the people that were cholos, you know, and they were, the, so low riding and cholismo kind of got misunderstood as being synonymous, you know, that they were the same thing and they definitely were not, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, 
the people the people that were low riding not not that every low rider is up for sainthood but you know <laughs> we put a ton of work into our cars we put a ton of time energy resources literally blood sweat and tears yeah whether you're building it yourself or whether you're working two jobs in order to have somebody else do the work whatever you know it's th- there's a lot on the line um and you know people who are you know, spectators or, you know, there for the social aspect, the, the ambiance in the environment, Mm -hmm. you know, who are pitching trash on the street, who are, you know, going to the bathroom on businesses or whatever, you know, that's the, that's the part that screws it up for, for the public at large, you know, whether you're in a car or not. So I think I think that the crackdowns had to do with the fact that they were, you know, they were blanket sweeps, you know, and that, and that can be said in Los Angeles, San Jose and San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of crazy how um, that similar sort of situation with dudes throwing shit on the street, dudes peeing on the side of buildings, dudes kind of just not really caring um sort of all simultaneously happened in la and sf right like it 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 there was that the uh unfortunately the stigma caught on in, in different cities right in multiple cities and uh, thanks for explaining that and that's kind of why i asked you that question because i wanted you to sort of clarify that point because unfortunately when outsiders or people not from the low riding community do see low riders they automatically have that association right like oh is there is there a gangster driving in that car <laughs> is there is there a cholo well, in there and it's it's a shitty it's a shitty dude well, you know, the explosion of gangster rap in the early 90s certainly did not help the image of low riding. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nor did the movies that came out of that, you know, I mean, Boys in the Hood. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, here you have a show quality 1963 Impala. Bad, you know? beautiful, bad Impala. I mean, you know, I mean, cars are a work of art, you know. And, you know, they're, you know, they're doing, they're doing the hit at, you know, in the, you know, one of the last scenes of the movie in it, you mm-hmm. know, yep. I mean, come on. Or, you know, Queen Latifah and her great standoff with the cops, <laughs> at the end of off. you know, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, but you know, that's why, you know, I, I've my work and, and what I, what I posit, what I try to put out there is, is that when we're, when we're, low riding we are cultural ambassadors you know oh, and yeah. and i see it and you know forgive me if i seem like i'm jumping on a soapbox here but we have a we have a responsibility to represent the culture in a positive way you know so what are we doing to give back to our communities you know because the kids are watching the kids are watching hell yeah you know, everybody is yep. so how how we act you know, it is, is very important insofar as my take on it. You know, other people might go, oh man, he just, um, square, but <laughs> something that I take seriously because, you know, it's, it's all about inspiring the next generation to do something, do, do something positive. You know, when, when I'm in my car or, you know, we're in our cars, that's the fruits of our hard work and our labor, you know, hopefully that inspires a child 
to work hard and do something positive in their life, independently of whether or not it has to do with low riding. Yeah, well, yeah, it's literally the fruits of your labor. Like <laughs> it's like a tangible, tangible fruit of your labor. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned a couple of famous low riders, right? You, or not famous, but essentially low ride. You know, low riders in pop culture with Doughboy's low rider and in Boys in the Hood and Queen Latifah's low rider. Also, some other lowriders I think of are, uh, you know, lowrider in Training Day or Cheech and Chong, right? Like there's there's many different lowriders. Can you give folks, um, this is for the, the general listener, can you define a lowrider like specifically? Because there's individuals who may see a classic car and they think, oh, look at that classic. That's a lowrider, vice versa, right? So there's a sort of um there are a few elements or there are some key takeaways that define lowriders and and some of those have to do you know with the culture can you go into that a little bit oh man you know (laughs) and and this stuff is hotly debated Mm -hmm. of course course. i mean you would think look (laughs) when you get into this topic (laughs) you would you would think that people are like, you know, the earth is flat. No, it's round. It's flat. It's round. Heretic. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because, you know, because we have to understand that, that there's, an evo- there's, a, there's an evolutionary process to low riding. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you want to take it back to, to the Pachucos of the 1940s, right? You know, their cars were the antithesis of Anglo car modification, which was, you know, what's called the California rake, which is the car jacked up in the back and low in the front. Yep. Right. Yep. Pachucos flipped the script and lowered the back. Right. By, you know, whatever means necessary. I mean, bricks, you know, bags of sand or cement. (laughs) <laughs> big rock what wow. any whatever whatever you could do to drop the back of the car right to give it that stance right then wow. you could you know, it gave the car a completely different attitude you know and a, and a different body line and a and a different profile and that's right that was the intention behind um sort lowering or slamming the back right is for a specific stance to to achieve that, that look, look. Different look, different attitude, because, you know, on a car, you know, stance and wheels are everything, you know what I mean? And so, so a low rider essentially, and, and again, I'm going to keep this very as neutral as I can. Right. Um, Is that (laughs) it's a classic car for the most part, it's a classic car Mm -hmm. with a modified suspension. Okay. Meaning that you static drop the car where you either heat or cut the coils and the car is slammed. Okay. Which and means once that, which means low to the ground, right? Low to the as low as you can get it and still be drivable. I mean, you know, like my wife has a 1975 Monte Carlo that's static drop. So the car slammed and I actually had to put spacers in the coil in the front because it was bottoming out. She couldn't drive it. Couldn't <laughs> take any driveway no, because it was just too low, if you could imagine, right? And then, and then, so then you had hydraulic hydraulics installed in a car, which allows the car to go up and down, right? Well, 
that so the the fluid that pushes through the system is essentially motor oil it's not hydraulic fluid it's motor oil oh, wow. so when you hit so when you hit the switch you know it moves it moves the oil through right and you know it lifts and lowers the car you know when you drop the drop the the switch down the 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 fluid goes back into the tank and then you're you're down right and yep, then yep. up so it allows you to go up and down so then you had the the onset of airbags or air ride suspension what what year um are there certain sorry to interrupt you brother but are there certain uh years that you know are more associated with hydraulics like in terms of when did when did people start putting hydraulics on their car and then when did hydraulics get sort of phased out and you know airbags like you just mentioned kind of come in is there sort of like time scales that align up with that as far as you know i want yeah so i believe if my history is is correct mm -hmm. that ron aguirre built the exonic which was the first hydraulically lifted car therefore referred to as the first lowrider because it's got hydraulics i would argue with that because just because he had hydraulics they there they had been low riding since the pachuco era in the 40s yep. you know what i mean so it really depends on one's definition like the purists say you have to have hydraulics and wire wheels and if you don't and 520 tires which is a bias ply tire it's not a radio yep. right so it's but my thing is is that a static drop hydraulics or air ride suspension whatever whatever floats your boat or whatever gets you lower to the ground <laughs> you know low, low low riding is in here you know what i mean low riding here it's in here it's 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 in one soul you know i mean you know my kid has a low rider bike here we're building my son's that's right behind me my other son you know i mean you know are you going to tell me that they're not low riders because they don't have cars i mean you know <laughs> yeah you know, low, rider, low rider magazine back in the day i've been trying to find the issue um they gave a definition of a low rider and they basically said if you have it in your heart you're low riding you don't have to it's an attitude it's a way of life it has nothing to do with whether or not you have a vehicle well the people that you know literally cut themselves on the metal every day might beg to differ but you know it's uh i mean but this is a hotly debated topic on how do you define a low rider in my in so to answer your question mm -hmm. classic car modified suspension you know what i mean it helps if you have you know have smaller wheels you know 13s or 14s um on some low rider trucks or bombs they'll even go 15 inch um you know it just depends on the look you know but when you start getting into the 20 inch rims i mean that's that's a donk yeah. that's a completely <laughs> different car subculture yeah i was actually talking about um donks last night because uh my, my best friend she was uh she was mentioning in houston she was like oh you know my brother's in houston and uh all, all the lowriders and i was like wait did they have big you know 25 inch chrome wheels and she was like yeah and i was like well that's not a lowrider that's a donk and she was like what and i was like yeah we'll talk yeah. about this with john tomorrow like you know we'll get into it yeah. and you know just too. oh okay donk 
Miami, there's a lot of dunks. That Southern, you could, I guess you would say this, that Southern style, right? The Southern feel, maybe dunks have that. I'm not, I'm not an expert on dunks, so <laughs> I don't, I don't want to talk about that, which I don't know. But what I do know is that if you've got 20, if you've got big rims on a car, mm-hmm. it ain't a low water. Yeah. That much I would. Yeah, and um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but just some some thoughts that are coming to my head is that, you know, the the word uh, what a classic car is changes over the decades because as we get older, then you know more classics are introduced, right? Um, yeah. So lowriders kind of traditionally have this uh, vibe of being you know cars from what maybe the 30s to nowadays the late 80s you know currently but in 10 years then you know some of the cars from the early 90s are now going to be you know classics and they they too can be considered lowriders and i feel like even within lowriders you have like a 70s lowrider style you have like an 80s lowrider style you got like the 90s style right so even though you know we're talking about low riding um you know at this big sort of high level there are so many intricacies and little subgroups and subgenres that that go into low writing. So, you know, I, yeah. I it's it's difficult. You're doing a great job, dude, putting this in, hey, put, putting this all into to, to words. You know, you just inspired me to. I have to do the taxonomy now. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And okay, give it. What does taxonomy mean for a second? A tax. <laughs> It's anthro for the homies, man. We got we got to do for the anthro homies. For the, anthro for the homies. So a tax. So a taxonomy is basically a system of classification. Yep. Really. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like the order of species, right? There's like you know Michelangelo's like you know when I teach it, I do you know I actually do it you know with the you know the 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 you know chiseled male specimen right at the top, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, so why is why is man at the top of the taxonomy? My students go. I don't know. And I say, well, because man created the taxonomy, but (laughs) if that chiseled man is on the mountain ridge at dusk, I'm betting on the mountain lion. I ain't betting on the man. Yep. (laughs) Like, like, you know, like, like it's all, it's all Darwin at that point. You know what I mean? So (laughs) anyway, um, sorry, homies. So taxonomy is a class is a class it's a system of classification. I remember one of my tasks as an undergrad in anthropology was I had to do the taxonomy of my kitchen. Oh, wow. I had to I had to classify everything in my kitchen. <laughs> and and what I found out was like damn, how many wooden spoons do two people need? <laughs> and and that was and that was the point, right? Is to is to look at, you know, where, you know, your cultural excessive uh, consumption patterns are, you know what I mean? Um, So basically, yeah, that's what a taxonomy is. It's a classification. Mm -hmm. So when we think taxonomy, we think about order of species, but it can be applied to anything. For sure, for sure. And that's the point. But I do think it would be interesting to do the taxonomy of low riding, right? Because you have your decades, but then even within that the decades you have different styles of cars then you have different different um you know like you can take a bomb which is like 30s up to 1954 mm. right american automobile mm. but then 
But then how is that bomb done? What kind of wheels does it have on it? Is it a stock height? Does it have hydraulics? Does it have airbags? What kind of interior? In other words, what period, you know, because there were some dope 70s style bombs. Yep. And that had to do with wheels, tires, hydraulic setup, Paint. upholstery. Paint. Paint. Absolutely. Yep. Mm. So Hey, dude. Yeah. Well, this sounds dope. If you're serious about putting it together, let's, let's uh, collab on a paper or something. I'd love to help you out with that. It would be dope to do like the oh, official man. official taxonomy um, of low writing. So how so currently you're you're you know, you have uh, many focus, but would it be correct to say that, you know, currently um, for the last 15 years, like we talked about, um, your focus now is sort of the globalization of lowriders and rather rather than lowriding being sort of this, you know, American Chicano thing, it's it's now, um, you know, take, taken off a, across the world. Do you want to talk to a little bit more about that more specifically, um, maybe c- certain areas, geographic areas that, that you work in? Yeah. So, you know, I don't have a big, you know, Ford Foundation grant behind me. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have a Rockefeller Foundation, you know, bottomless money vat of, you know, that will, you know, I don't have travel grants. I am 100% self-funded. Um, so what that, so what, <laughs> sweet, <laughs> which means that <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, it's a true labor of love, you yeah. know? And, um, and so what happened was, was that, you know, the homies from, from dead end magazine. Oh yeah. Yeah. Juan and Jesus Espinoza, these guys um, really, 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 uh, they have Japan locked down. I mean, they have been to Japan many, many times. Um, when I went to Japan, I was fortunate enough to roll in their entourage, which gave me access to people and sites and, and lowriders that I would have per- had a difficult time um, connecting with had I just gone on my own, you know, these guys really, really helped me out. And they've been a huge inspiration to me. Um, They did a show called Far East Style and Custom. And um, Far East Side, yeah, the Far East Side Style and Custom, I believe is what the show was. Mm -hmm. And it was a photo exhibit in San Jose. Um, Just, you know, one side was custom cars and the other side were low riders. And, um, and I was just like taking it all in. I had shelved my research once I got out of grad school. Cause I started teaching like crazy. And, um, you know, I, my wife and I were having dinner and it was in Japantown in San Jose. And I said, you know what? I said, these guys are inspiring me to resurrect my research. And my wife said, really? And I said, yeah, I said, I got to do this. And she said, do it. And the next day, my I started my Instagram, Low Ride Worldwide. And I said, you know, I'm going to resurrect my research. So I went to my box of documents from grad school, pulled it out, looked at the original PowerPoint that was kind of the nucleus for all of it, you know, kind of ground zero for everything. Mm-hmm. And formally, in a formal academic sense, and I said, you know, I'm doing this. So um, I started really exploring the Japan thing and I got to go to Japan. I got to, you know, academically, I had explored it and looked at different um, Japanese subculture, you know, 
just, you know, fascination with things American mm-hmm. um, and American culture. And, and, um, and I went, you know, I got to go see it. I got to go check it out. And so I went four years ago now. Okay. And um, I started posting a bunch of pictures. Was that in then, uh, uh, Na- Nagoya specifically? Or uh, I was in, yeah, I was in, I went to go to a show in Nagoya. Mm-hmm, Nagoya. And then, and then I went to Tokyo for one day because um, Tribal, the brand, mm-hmm. uh, w- was opening the lower left, Tokyo. And so I said, okay, for sure, there's going to be some low riding happening over there. So I'm going to go check it out. So I took the bullet train. So on my first day in Japan, I took the bullet train from Nagoya to Tokyo. And as it turned out, there were no low riders there at all. <laughs> but but I was able to meet low riders who were there from Thailand. And Bobby Ruiz, who is the owner of Tribal and the founder of Tribal Gear, mm-hmm. he said, hey, man, those homies, they do a lot of good stuff in, in Thailand. Wow. So I met them and they, they were super cool and they were all there for the show. And um, it was interesting because at the show, I was able to meet a lot of cool people. And I met people from New Zealand. I met people from Australia. And, uh, you know, it was like this, this hub that would a magnet of, you know, people coming from all throughout the world to this show, you know, because the level of low riding in Japan is extremely high. Yeah. You know, beautiful cars, beautiful cars. The cars are perfect. The cars are absolutely perfect and they're building them, you know? And so then I just started. So after that, after that, I was asked to come to Brazil. So I went to Brazil a few times and um, Sao Paulo specifically and, um, and started to really like, you know, sink my teeth into what they had going on there. And then, you know, it's funny because, you know, you have to think about methods. How are you going to conduct the research? Well, Instagram and social media has shrunk the world to fit, you know, on the head of a pin, you know, and um, I started seeing like, you know, low riding in Saudi Arabia. So I was able to interview. I was trying to get I was trying to get them. I was trying to get the Saudis for years, literally years. (laughs) And then I get this DM from a woman who says, um, I've been tasked with vetting you essentially. Whoa. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. She was from like, well, who? she was from Saudi. Yeah. And I'm like, well, who are you? And she said, Well, I work for I work for this man, you know, who's a low rider, mm. who is agreeable to help you with your project, but he needs he needs more information. So he's put me to interview you basically about who you are and what you're doing. Wow. And I was like, wow, what a trip. So I went back and forth with her for like a week before I got a calendared appointment with him. And then I did, we did an interview uh, through WhatsApp and I didn't know how to screen record or anything, (laughs) um, but it was really cool. Um, And then they were trying to bring me out there for a show, but they said, you know, as soon in, uh, in, um, Jeddah. They were, they were, yeah, they were trying to bring me out for this show. It still hasn't happened. Um, but they've been really cool and, um, you know, they're killing it in Moscow, Russia. They're doing like these, they have these like little funky cars that almost look like Corvairs. Mm-hmm. They're 
they're done super 70 style. They're badass cars. Wow. You know, and so they're killing it there. Um, you know, it's thriving, alive and well all throughout North America. Of course. Canada, Canada here, obviously, and yep. Mexico, Santiago, Chile. I mean, really, it's almost like where isn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just it so it is truly a global phenomenon. What's interesting is that when I was in grad school, there was a guy in one of my uh, methods classes who was talking about, now you have to remember, mm -hmm. this is 2005, okay. 2000, 2004, end of 2004 into 2005. Okay. This was talking about cyber ethnography. Oh, wow. Which, cyber ethnography. Yeah. yeah. You wanna, can you break down that, that term real quick? <laughs> So, so like, so the way cultural anthropologists gather their information is by conducting ethnography. And that's when you go out into the field and observe human beings in their environment. Mm -hmm. And then you collect data. Yep. Thank you for that. Either by observing, interviewing, participating, right? Those are all ways of, of gathering the data, mm -hmm. right? Reading past data that other people have done already and you get an idea right. or whatever. If there then, you, then you take your field notes in real time, or I don't do it that way. What I do is I take like fragmented field notes. Cause as soon as you bust out the pen and paper, people get a little, people change. It's different. Either, they, either like, then there's like the need to perform or, you know, the need to lie or to, you know, to, you know, to, okay, this is being kept now. So, you know, there's just a performance aspect of it. So what For I sure. do, what I do is I'm more discreet about how I take my notes. Best case scenario, nobody sees me writing anything down. And then as soon as I can, immediately after the fact, I write my field notes, almost in a reflexive journaling kind of diary kind of way. Yeah, yeah. And then it's, and then it's cataloged. And then no one feels uncomfortable. Well, this cat was talking about cyber ethnography and I was going cyber ethnography. <laughs> and my professor was like, cyber ethnography, what the hell are you talking about? And he was like, well, at that time, discussion boards, like how people interact with each other in these online communities. Okay. This is 2004. Yeah. And we're going, no, the primatologists were like, no, you got to go to the zoo and freeze your ass off. <laughs> I'm going like, no, you got to go to the bar and you got to have a couple drinks and you got to include people in there, you know, like that. And, yeah. you know, so the people that had like this traditional non-technological come from, but this dude was like, no, this is the future. And here I am, you know, all these years later, relying on cyber ethnography. Wow. Right. Wow. Because, because I have to. Yeah. Right. And, and it's where we've, and it's where we've arrived to, you know what I mean? So in other words, if I miss a car show, like there was a big car show, um, in Odessa, Texas, a couple weeks ago. Okay. I missed it because I'm not going to travel right now, mm. but I, I saw it on the gram. Right. Yeah. So cyber ethnography allows us to conduct research, but instead of physically being there, you are virtually there. 
Yeah, and that's pretty cool because speaking on your point of, you know, let's say uh, you mentioned you take notes and as soon as you start taking notes, there's a, a people have like a, a filter up essentially, right? And through these cyber ethnographies, you're able to see it in real time. Like if somebody takes a video and they're just panning through the car show or something, they're capturing a moment, like a true moment or, or an organic moment, right? They're not, those individuals in the video are not, probably not being like oh my god i'm being filmed and i gotta look like it, right it's just something that's that's happened really naturally so in some aspects there's you know some benefit um to the cyber ethnography and i mean we're all making do right like I, I wanted to go up there and you know do this have this conversation in person but my work canceled my uh you know uh any traveling right now so everyone's making do with what, what we what we can right now um you have to don't get me wrong. I would love to physically travel the world for full sure. time, full time and do that. I mean, I was supposed to go to New Zealand this year. You know, I have an, an outstanding uh, invitation to Australia. Wow. You know, I would love to have been there. I'm dying to get back to Japan again. You know, I mean, there are places that I want to go. I can't, Yeah. you know, because of limitations or restrictions now, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. Um, you're talking about these different places, Japan and Australia and things like that. And we're, we're talking about low riders now out here in the, in the States, North America, if you see a, a dude or a gal low riding, they're going to have a, a look more than like generally, right. They may have some tattoos. Maybe they got a black tee and, and some, some Converse or some Chuck Taylors. Is that something that you see in Japan and Brazil and New Zealand, or is it different? Like do the Japanese cats do this and Brazilian cats, they dress like this, but not really like the Cholos. And can you talk a little bit about that? Like essentially how, perhaps the the car or the lowrider is a vehicle for dress and music and other aspects of, of culture. Yeah. I'm working on a paper that's roughly titled it all goes together. <laughs> and that, and that's where, you know, the car, the fit, the soundtrack, you know, the aesthetic, you know, kind of as a, a, a thesis statement for culture you know, or if nothing else, a snap, a cultural snapshot, if you will. Um, but again, like I was saying before, you know, the, the people that are the baddest at doing this don't mm-hmm. necessarily suit up and boot up, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to roll. Um, a friend of mine in Australia, Adam Tyson, I actually met him in Japan and um, he actually got married here in Yosemite. Oh, and when he, and he and his wife were on that wedding uh, honeymoon trip. They stayed in San Francisco for a couple of days and I went up to meet him. And uh, it was really cool, man. Adam has the baddest, the baddest lowrider in Australia. Dude. Like hands down, he is credited as the top of the food chain as far as Australian lowriding goes. What, what is it? What does he, what does he drive? <laughs> he has a, he has a 60 drop top Impala nice. and it's show quality. Um, and he started, well, he petitioned for the, uh, majestics chapter in Australia and they got very prestigious and very high level. Um, and, uh, you know, Adam, if, if you saw Adam in the grocery store on the street, you would never think low rider. 
because he doesn't fit the aesthetic stereotype for what a low rider should or shouldn't look like. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just he's like an average dude, you know? Um, but, um, you know, in Japan, yeah, you know, I've seen, you know, because, and there, there have been like those documentaries, you know, CNN has reported on it. The New York Times has reported on it. You know, it's nothing new. I mean, that stuff goes back to, you know, the early 90s when Lowrider Magazine covered uh, the Osaka Japan show. Mm-hmm. That's when it first blew my mind. I think that was 92. Classic when show. I opened, when I opened Lowrider Magazine and went, what? Lowriding in Japan, right? Because historically, it was confined to the barrio, mm-hmm. you know? You know, you... And even though there were African-American lowriders, it was still a Chicano thing. Mm. It was still a Mexican thing. It was still a barrio thing, not necessarily a hood thing, you know? And um, it was very racialized, for lack of a better term, you know? And um, so the, it, was, it, was, it was compartmentalized. It was pigeonholed in terms of, like, where the parameters were with lowriding. Lowriding is here, mm. not here. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, so then with the 90s gangster rap videos, right? Now, in terms of a, a global diffusion aspect, which is what my work is, you know, in other words, how is it, you know, my question is, how did that happen, right? Well, in Japan, if you look at Nagoya, mm-hmm. the OGs of Japanese low riding, the guys who have been doing it the longest mm-hmm. were, were very influenced by the Cheech and Chong movies. <laughs> up, up in Smoke, Nice Dreams. And that aesthetic. So you're going to see people. So Nagoya lowriding culture is very 70s style. They call it Chicano style lowriding. Mm-hmm. But what they're really talking about is 70s style lowriding, right? Yeah. Where in Tokyo, it's they call it African American style, and what they're talking about is a '90s style alone. Mm. Right, a lot of and G bodies and Impalas. Yeah. Right. That come out of that. You know that that very much that gangster rap look. Right. Yep. yep. Of the early 90s, what people were seeing in videos. Mm-hmm. Right. In Brazil, they call in Brazil. There's this, what they call la cultura, the culture, la cultura, la cultura. And what it is, is kind of this hodgepodge of low riding, um, LA inspired as fashion aesthetic with the, you know, if you're a size 32 pant, you're going to get a size 42 <laughs> with Cortez is you know and you may not have access to a flint a pendleton so you're going to get some kind of plaid button up you yeah. know what i mean yeah and bandanas and if you can get something that looks like lokes right so it's an attempt to recreate that style mm. some people some people authenticate it and other people try really hard to get really close you know what i mean um i don't see that so much in russia although there are there's a tattooer out in russia who has it down, you know, in terms of his aesthetic and his tattoo sensibilities, you know, um, but it's kind of this sliding scale of, you know, look, I kind of started with this floating the term edict, E-T-I-C, 
which means the outsider's perspective. The emic is the insider's perspective, mm. right? And 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 the struggle to achieve the emic, I I like it at like a bullseye. Like a bullseye is like boom, you nailed it, right? Insider, yeah, it's yours. It's ours. And I think that as you move out on that, it just gets to be that way, you know? So I don't know if that makes any sense, yeah. but it's this it's this constant struggle to hit the bullseye. Some people hit it, but it is a struggle, you know? I mean, like, for example, you know, there's people in, in Brazil who try to speak Kahlo, which is like, you know, the old Pachuco slang, you know? You know, orale, cuvole, you know, that you know, kind of, you know, Chicano hip. And I mean, and I don't mean that in a hipster way. I mean that in the period correct word hip, you know, of the sixties and even into the seventies. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, of, but, you know, but it might be a little off. Right. So instead of saying, orale, they'll say, orale, right. The accent. (laughs) they're trying but it ain't (laughs) they missed they missed that bullseye just just a little bit they missed that bullseye by moving the accent a syllable you know what i mean yeah yeah but you know so there's a there's a consciousness of of cultural attributes but the accuracy with which those attributes are put into play on a daily basis are not necessarily on solid ground per se yeah, yeah, yeah. But the same, but the same could be true for here. Of you course, know? of course, of course. I wear I wear Pendletons, but I'm no cholo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, we got my the, dad, the tattoos. My dad wore Pendletons. Yeah, you know, it's because it's he, cold. He, well, but you know, my dad, my dad, my dad was like a wannabe Pachuco, <laughs> you know, because my dad lived in Riverbank, California, which is in north in the Central Valley, Central California, and my dad would tell me that. You know, there were guys that were in the military that would come home who were Chicanos, who by staying in L.A., either like that was their point of entry back in the United States, being in the mix with Pachucos in L.A., then they would come back to Riverbank and go, hey, this is how they're doing it in L.A. Mm -hmm. They're pegging their pants this way. They're pressing them down this way. And then they would take their pants to like the one old lady in the neighborhood that knew how to sew and they would tell her this is how we want our pant- our pants pegged just like this and she would do it yeah. so she would actually sew their pachuco pants but they were just trying to emulate what was um what was happening there um and then you know an old an elder the veterano that i know who was actually one of my professors dr loco jose cuellar sick yeah he um he's the he's the leader of Dr. Loco's Jalapeno band. You know, he he is of that same era and he said and he's from San Antonio, Texas and he said, you know, we there's there's actually a corrido about that about how dudes from San Antonio would hop the train to go party in LA and then when they were done they would hop the train back to San Antonio. Whoa. And that that is also, you know, as people move around right? That's cultural diffusion. For sure. And that's really, that's really at the heart of my work. In other words, what I do is I use low writing as an example to how the culture spreads, but it's one variable in a human equation 
that really, you know, you could account for anything. I mean, you know, there's nothing more American than baseball. <laughs> nothing more. There's nothing more American than baseball. But baseball is the national sport of Cuba. Yeah. There's nothing more Cuban than baseball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you go to Cuba and you want to talk baseball, you had better have your stuff together because they will talk baseball. It's it's incredible how eloquently you're able to to put all of these different concepts and sort of sum up your research, man. That was, that was beautiful. Like I, I'm so inspired. I feel like a lot of people are gonna be um, so so inspired after this, man. Like honestly, you know, it's crazy how fast time goes by because I feel like we could just keep talking for hours and hours and hours and hours about all of this stuff. Um, yeah, like I don't really feel like I said anything, man. You know, I mean, honestly, I feel like I feel like I'm just rambling. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so. that's the beauty of this. That's how you could tell that you know that we both we both share this passion. Like, I I just think so many questions sort of come up um, with with what you're saying, and th this in and of itself could be a super long podcast episode on its own. But where does uh, where do you see the line of cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation of lowriders, right? Like, I, I know, I know this is super, super loaded, dude, but right. And, and cultural appropriation in and of itself is a freaking loaded topic on its own. Like that could be like an entire season of podcasting and, um, you know, um, be nice to John. Like, I, I don't want, you know, fools to hit us up in the comments and be like, Hey, that's wrong, man. You're, you don't know shit about low riding, right? So obviously this is just a two, two dudes, two low riders sharing their knowledge. But what do you, what do you think, man? Like, you know, is, is there cultural appropriation of low riders or do do you think like, hey, so long as that dude's low riding and he's got, he feels it and and he's doing it, like, yeah, let him do it, let him low ride. Like, what do you think? Well, look, man. I mean, people could argue that I'm appropriating it for my own personal gain. You know, like I'll own that. Like, people could make that argument. Oh man, look, he's doing it. You know, to pimp our stuff out, to you know, sell his merch, or you know you know, who's this fool new to the game? Like, you know, because if people don't know who I am and they don't know my backstory, it could very much appear that way. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, when I got asked to teach a class at San Francisco state university on, uh, special topics in history in Latino America or whatever, Latinos, you know, it was like special topics, Latinos, right. In the Latino studies department formerly known as the Raza Studies Department. Mm. I said, well, they gave me a, a sample course outline that was on gender. And I'm like, I don't do gender. I mean, like, I'll do it for like a week as mm. a subtopic, but I don't do it. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. That's just how that professor taught it. You can teach anything you want. Generally, teachers, uh, the professor teaches to their research specialty. And I went, oh, really? I said, well, then you're about to have the first class on the history of lowriding. Yeah. And so I, I taught a history of lowriding class. And what I did is I used lowriding as, an, as an entry point to talk about other issues in our community. You know, for example, you, want to, you, you brought up the criminalization of lowriding, right? There's a whole history of the criminalization of lowriding. And then we use that then 
to fan out, okay, in other, in what other ways are our people criminalized? Mm. Mm. And then we talk about school to prison pipeline. We talk about, you know what I mean? So in other words, I, I use low writing as the hook to then talk about a lot of other issues um, in our community. So I used low writing as, as a way to educate people as much as I can. For sure. Okay. You know, so that's where my headspace is and that's where my heart and that's where my passion is. But somebody could say that fool is appropriating our shit for his own agenda. Well, okay, fine. My agenda is to educate people and to decriminalize low riding. That's, that's the real deal, mm-hmm. you know, but, but where you get, so I think that I'm going to answer your question now. <laughs> I, I think that, that in Japan, I've seen more cultural appreciation and in other parts of the world, I've seen more cultural appropriation, mm. you know, where, you know, I've made no bones about the fact that, you know, when I see Instagram models in Brazil that wear Calavera face paint, right? The day of the dead, mm. you know, face paint at an event for a photo op well you know then i stopped being an anthropologist and i'm just i'm just myself chicano Mm. this is my culture so basically you're taking the deepest most sacred profound aspects of my culture and you're using as it as a photo op well that's problematic Mm-hmm. You know, Most um, you know, and those are my personal politics, right? That's got nothing to do with academia. You know, that's just got, that's just, you know, me reacting to how my culture is being pimped out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, I don't know if you saw the Adidas campaign with Beyonce with, on a lowrider bike, no, you know? No, I didn't see that. One. Yeah. It's a beautiful picture, you know? Um, what does Beyonce know about low riding? I don't know. I haven't had the opportunity to interview her about her knowledge of low riding. Yeah. You know, or, you know, like my son watches the Disney channel from time to time and he'll go, dad, look, a low rider bike. And on the set of one of their shows, they have a low rider bike, you know? Um, so is, is that cultural appropriation? Well, generally if it's disney i'm going i'm betting on yes <laughs> yeah for Just sure because, you know we have we have the the that background you know yeah um you know so you know but i don't think that we have to look too far throughout the globe to pinpoint cultural appropriation especially you know as far as uh low riding is concerned mm. you know i we can st- we can stay right here within the continental United States to find cultural appropriation with low riding or aesthetics. For sure, you know, yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, you know, it's different. Like you know, you mentioned uh, that the individual of a young lady or the image of a young lady putting the calavera face paint on and then taking the photo and then using that photo to present herself the difference there obviously right is that young lady's probably going to go home and wash off that face paint 
and then it ends there right like her low riding her whatever it, it just ends there boom done she doesn't get into low riders she doesn't go home and go to the garage where you got the gypsy rose in the back right and you know the low ride worldwide banner so there are certain things that happen after the fact after the car show after the low rider right do you go home and are you still this individual or was that just a short snippet in time you know to to right. to promote you to promote yourself essentially right um well and then and then that gets into like you know um you know hashtag you know if you follow the hashtags you know chicano culture worldwide if you look at the hashtag chicano culture worldwide you'll see a lot of stuff on there that is not chicano yeah but get but gets erroneously lumped in as Chicano. And a lot of it is like, you know, is gang glorification. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing is, is that, you know, Chicanos, you know, low riding is born out of the barrio experience in the Southwestern United States. Yep. And, and you know, look, every culture has its creation myth, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and, and and I let I let people fight over, ground zero for low riding where did it start you know who who started it where did it begin that's not my fight my thing is like okay the milk is spilled where's it running i'm interested in okay you all stay fighting over there amongst yourself as to whether it started in la san jose albuquerque new mexico wherever mm -hmm. i'm interested in like well now what's up with the saudis low riding what's up with the guamanians low riding? Right. Yeah. What's up with the Japanese low riding? What's up with the, you know, low riders in Russia and doing it? And, you know, how are they sourcing parts? And, you know, what are they using? Are their bolts metric? Are they standard? Like, how do they negotiate? Money? Like, yeah. I yeah. Dude, this is incredible, bro. Honestly, um, like I said, I, I really hope that uh, we could do this more because you just have this breadth of knowledge that, you know, um, just flows so naturally, dude. And I mean, we're talking about lowriders now, but you have a whole nother, you, you got so much knowledge, but another cool thing is the, the magic witchcraft and religion that you do. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, you know, we could come on and, and talk more about that you know i have to give some shout outs to to the people who inspired me you know i mean like when i found out you know because really you know there's there is a stereotype about anthropology and and who the anthropologists are and i think that that is really informed by media you know and and how you know on the discovery channel or the history channel or you know whenever you have you know the you know, it's like I, I asked my students about it. I'm like, you know, what do you think an anthropologist looks like? And I said, <laughs> let me get it. old white guy with a scruffly beard, the little wire glasses, yeah. <laughs> the, the khaki vest, right? And they're, you know, out on the dig in Egypt or wherever the hell they are, yeah. you know, and then, and then they fill in. They're like, yeah, and the dude's wearing like baggy shorts with, the, and we almost say it at the same time with the wool socks pulled up to the knee, <laughs> yeah. right? Handkerchief. And I'm like, right. And who's doing the work behind him? The locals and the grad students. Mm -hmm. That guy is getting all the funding. He's got the institutional support. He's going to write the book. He's, you know, do the article, getting all the accolades, but ain't shit without the people behind him doing all the grunt work. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And so, and so when, when I, when I was coming up, I was really inspired by people who were, 
who were historians and anthropologists together in community college. I had two professors who were uh, who were historians and anthropologists. Wow. So they they got me to dovetail these things very early on. So when I got to SF State, you know, I did history, but then I said, okay, now I'm going to do the degree that I always wanted to do, which which was anthropology. But when I got to state. I was still, even though I was doing my history stuff, mm. I was still very influenced by all these different anthropologists campus-wide. In the anthropology department, in ethnic studies, who happened to be anthropologists. And at that time, Jose Cuellar, Dr. Loco, mm. was, was uh, the chair of Raza Studies. Sweet. And that, and that dude was a homie. Like, like a lit, like you want to talk about a cholo. I mean, this guy was like, you know, he had, you know, his little, you know, goatee that was braided down to here. Sick. You know, brocha, you know, Pendleton, khakis, you know, and he, and, you know, I ended up, I'm his drummer now. I mean, I've been, in, I've been involved in his organization musically for the last 20, almost 21 years now. Wow. Um, I road managed him and then I played and I'm his drummer now, but he was, he showed me like, man, not only are the parameters off in terms of what you can do with anthropology, but you don't have to look a certain part, you know, it ain't about that. It ain't about that at all, you know? And I think it's, I've always been an outside the box thinker, a very abstract, non-linear thinker, Mm -hmm. like, you know, in other words, Roman numeral point one a that doesn't work with me. <laughs> I don't teach like that. It drives my students crazy because I get accused of jumping around, right? Because I'm more of the brainstorm guy. And then I'm like, okay, here are all the parts. Now let's put it together. Yeah. And then, but it's kind of the long road. It's the process of working out these individual components and then bringing them together. For sure. And it's having the discipline and the wherewithal to stick with the process for it to come into fruition. For the sure. car is the car is a metaphor for that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And anthropology gives gives us the tools to be able to put it together in a way that makes sense, in a way that is, um, yeah, just a way that you know may, makes sense. It gives us the tools to be able to carry out the research in a correct way. Um, it's super, super badass. Um, you know, just from what I remember historically about anthropology, um, the first anthropologists were kind of lumped together with historians, right? Like the anthropology department was under the history department. And then I'm not sure we could, that could be a whole other podcast about how and the, the split, um, but it's really cool because I remember, you know, when I first started taking anthropology courses later on in life, my anthro professors were these individuals that had colored hair, that had tattoos. They would curse, right? The first time I ever heard like a, my professor curse, this dude was cursing up a storm and he was so cool because he was brilliant. You know, he was cursing, but he was brilliant and the stuff he was teaching was incredible and it was interesting. And he just, he sort of like validated being weird you know or being out of the box like you're saying being non-linear but also being authentic and and being real and still being able to um you know carry out research and get in positions of power and teach and then pass pass the knowledge on um super cool um you're also you go ahead have you read have you read a book called religions of mesoamerica no no i haven't 
written by David Carrasco. Okay. If you want now, if you want to talk about a homie, David Carrasco is a homie, and we were. Uh, I was road managing Doctor Local, and we were playing a gig in San Jose, in some club, and there was this big biker looking guy around, and I had read I had read Carrasco's work. And he did, um, he did a, like a revisiting of, um, uh, the myth of Quetzalcoatl, um, you know, uh, uh, Hernan Cortez's writings and, you know, he f- f- annotates the whole thing. So that's really the work is like his notes on, on the, on, you know, this is all Spanish conquest stuff, uh-huh. but Carrasco is a heavy, heavy hitter, rock star scholar. Yeah. sounds, his name definitely sounds familiar. And so we were, and I was like, there was this guy in the mix. And so I asked the keyboard player, I go, who is that? He goes, that's David Carrasco. And I went, what? This dude's been standing next to me all night, pounding beers, <laughs> right? And so I'm like, excuse me, profe? And he was like, no, just I'm just Carrasco. And I'm like, man, I love your work. I'm reading it for this class. And he's like, oh, right on, Holmes, like that. <laughs> And so I just kept giving him drink because I had like all these drink tickets because I was a road manager. So yeah. I wasn't to the band because I didn't want the band to get pedo. But I was, <laughs> I was feeding Carrasco drink tickets all night to this. And, and now he is the head of the Divinity School at Harvard, Whoa. which is the oldest institution of higher learning in the country. Wow. He's the head of the Harvard Divinity School. I could email him right now. And he would get, and when he responds, good to hear from you, Holmes. Hey, S.A., how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, good. Homie. Wow. But at the highest, the ivory of ivoriest towers. Yeah. Of yeah, he, hell yeah. Yeah. Wow, so, that's, that's incredible. I, I, I've heard his name um, so much. And uh, yeah, I definitely need to, I definitely need to know his work. Most definitely. Not all of us, not all of us wear, uh, khaki shorts um, unless they're dickies but you know not all, we're not wearing the khaki vests out in the field with you know little glasses yeah 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 i still got my handkerchief on though when i go to the field brother i still gotta have i still gotta have my handkerchief um so we kind of talked about this a, a lot but you're actually working on a really really cool project and um it's something that i definitely wanted to to talk give you space to t- talk more about but you're putting together a book um is that correct that is correct. Nice, nice. And it's a book on low riding worldwide, right? Yeah. So initially, um, you know, when I, when I resurrected the research, mm-hmm. I said, all right, I got to do this thing. I got to write this book. And um, because I really wanted it told from the insider's perspective, yep. right? And um, so I started traveling and writing and um, reflecting and writing, um, just you know, origins, you know, multi-sided research, um, and just kind of put my quote-unquote findings together. And really, you know, I pitched the idea to UC Press, which is Berkeley, which is, you know, one of the biggest uh, academic presses um, in the world. And I just kind of hit, you know. The publishing game is funny because it's like, you know, it's like trying to get a record deal, right? <laughs> Jesus. 
It's easier to get, look, it's easy to get a record deal if your name is Justin Bieber or Beyonce or, you know, you know, some mega star that where the sales are already guaranteed. Mm -hmm. It's, it's much more difficult if, if you're not known and even more difficult if you don't have big fancy letters behind your name. Mm -hmm. So even though I have two master's degrees, like I've straight up been turned down because I don't have a doctorate. Jesus. You know what I mean? And so, um, so I, I looked at UC press and I'm like, okay, the acquisitions editor who is basically like the person who is in charge of signing the new books, mm -hmm. um, acquiring, he, uh, he was an Asian specialist and an anthropologist. And I went, okay. So I cold emailed him and said, this is what I'm doing. This is what my, my, uh, idea is. This is the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, great. I love it. I would love to see a proposal. Wow. Holy cow. Were you, were you expecting that response from him or like what, what kind of response did, did you have a, a response in mind or did, were you just open-minded? I, you know, everybody wants to see a proposal <laughs> because that's, what's going to weed out the riffraff mm. from the serious scholar mm -hmm. because those things are, you know, the requirements are, you know, it, look, you know, unless you're Stephen King, you ain't going to just call a publisher and say, publish my book. <laughs> right, right. So what they want, what they want to see is they want to see an abstract, which is like, you know, a brief description of the work. Mm, paragraph want, or two. They want a sample chapter. They want an outline. They want, you know, they want the, the technical, right. So that they're gauging number one, their production costs, like how many pages is it? Okay. Are there, are there color photographs? Like, are there, you know, like the, the business aspect of it, For sure. you know, the marketability, the audience where they can sell the book, this and that. Mm -hmm. So I was getting up at 5am every day, hacking out this, this, uh, this proposal. And then I kind of sat back one day and went, what the hell are you doing? If you write this book for an academic press, nobody is going to be able to understand it. Mm. Except, except the grad students who are going to read it for whatever, you know, whoever adopts it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. And, and I, and I kind of went, you know what, that would be, that would be really unfair if you produce this book in such crazy esoteric jargony, you know, yada, yada, blah, academic language. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, of then course. Of course. Would, would, would the people in your car club be able to understand it? They might buy it to support you, mm -hmm. but you know, I wanted it to be more accessible. For sure. Right? For sure. Right? I wanted it to be for the homies. For sure. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Otherwise, in my assessment, it's like, does the world really need another academic book? Mm. You know, let alone on some, in other words, something, you know, as somebody who is living as a lowrider, I didn't, I felt like the academics have already kind of, you know, culture vultured it, appropriated, <laughs> appropriated it. Of course. Right. 
And I didn't want it to be another one of those. So I said, you know what? I'm going to pitch this a little more down the middle. And if it's used in academic circles, fine. If it's not, that's fine too. But I want to put out a book that no matter who picks it up, they're going to understand it. And so that's what I'm doing. So, um, so I'm working on it. Um, whether or not um, it gets picked up by, you know, a publisher is, is secondary. I just want to do it in, and, and the other thing too, that I did is I control the content myself. Okay. I'm not, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't have an editor breathing down my neck saying change this or change that. Yeah. It's, it's my baby 100%. So Dope. I, I like the creative control about, you know, my theoretical frameworks that I'm using, my orientation, you know, where I want to hit the gas, where I want to back up, you know, it's, it's, it's 100% within my control. And that's where I think it needs to stay. Um, so, you know, if I have to self publish it, I self publish it. Wow. But, but I've, I've been on it for five years, you know, um, my wife's been totally kicking me in the ass. You got to get your book done. You got to get your book done. I, but my thing lately, the last couple of years is I've been more enjoying living it than writing about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Because, because, um, you know, like right here on the floor, you know, I'm looking at a custom grill for my car that I am building myself. Like I put it together. I had some help, but I welded it and I've been filing it and I'm getting it ready for Chrome. You know what I mean? Sweet. Like there's something to be said for that. Like I can still feel mm -hmm. the shards of metal slivers in my hands from working with the metal all day yesterday. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's what it is. You know what I mean? So, you know, um, I've been, I've been more living it than trying to articulate it. I've just been doing rather than talking about doing, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, most definitely, dude. Just the idea of freaking writing a book is insane. <laughs> like, how many people are like, "Yeah, I'm gonna write a book," right? So, just the fact that you got it going, you're in motion, it is extremely, extremely admirable. It's inspiring. It's dope. Um, I'm definitely gonna be a fan of the book. I'm definitely gonna buy the book. Um, so the book is just sort of um, your experience with low riding worldwide, your research. Um, do you have a sort of uh, brief um, synopsis of, about the book and the structure of it? Yeah. So basically the book, the book maps the global diffusion of low riding. Wow. Answers the question, hopefully, how did it happen and when and why and by whom? Um and then, you know, it, it talks, it talks about kind of the, what sociologists call the glocal, glocal. right? <laughs> the local, right. Which is the global and the local. So for example, mm. so for example, right. Mm. You know, McDonald's is a worldwide global entity, right. Mm. But given the cultural uh, practices locally, they change and they adapt their menu mm -hmm. for the local population, right? In yeah. other words, in India, the cow is sacred, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not gonna you're not gonna have a quarter pounder that has beef in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 
right? Or in the, the you know the Pulp Fiction thing, right? A Royale, <laughs> thing, right? Yeah. The metric system, you know. Yeah. Look at the big brain on Brad. Uh, <laughs> you know, but but that's an example of Glocal, right? For sure. So, It's still McDonald's, but it's, you know, it it account, you know, there's the regional variance, right. And, and the local variation and, and the the book talks about that, you know, so the broad stroke is on, you know, on the grand scale, you know, the global diffusion of low riding, but then gets into some of those idiosyncrasies about how low riding is in Japan versus because what's happened in a lot of the writing is that it's become so local, right? Like I'm looking at uh, a book by Ben Chappelle called low rider spaces. Mm-hmm. And he, and it's talking about, he's an anthropologist, mm-hmm. um, teaches, uh, he's a professor of American culture at Kansas university. Okay. And he is, uh, that book is basically his dissertation, his PhD thesis, um, but it focuses on Texas, right? So even though it's an important contribution to the the, the library of low writing research, mm. it still covers about that much, right? You know, um, other, you know, all, almost all the writing just hyper localizes it because it doesn't take into consideration the global schema. Yeah. And that's where my work is different than everybody else's work is that I put the global on the forefront, right? So the Gypsy Rose being the world's most famous lowrider, mm-hmm. right, is has a lot to do with, you know, it being in the opening credits of Chico and the Man. And then when that went into syndication, that show went into syndication and then was reaching a global audience now people throughout the world are able to see Gypsy Rose coming across the screen in the opening credits. Yeah, you know, when military personnel are taking copies of Lowrider magazine with them throughout the world, right? Um, you know, the, the the globalization of lowriding, you know, can go pretty far back. You know, in terms of the timeline, it didn't just happen with social media, right? There's a whole kind of backstory to this but as long as long as you have the movement of people anywhere throughout the globe or space right Mm -hmm. with the the planting of the american flag on the moon Mm -hmm. right as a cultural gesture right you know just the way you know columbus planted the flag in the you know western hemisphere you know that is a an imperial act Mm -hmm. boom you know, I'm claiming this, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so anytime you have people moving around, we're taking our cultural attributes with us. We're taking our, we're bringing our cultural baggage with us. Mm-hmm. We leave some of it behind. And then that reshuffles the cultural deck of the people who are exposed to cultural newness. You know, if you look at Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A good book. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of that documentary. I'm not a fan of his work. Period. Because I think that I think that a lot of it's questionable. It's a, originally a book. Uh, originally a book that he then turned into a documentary. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. You go to 
Papua New Guinea mm-hmm. and you see you see indigenous people there but wearing western clothes right it's because when you have that outside influence coming in mm-hmm. right those things get gifted traded you know lost forgotten left behind and then other people adopt that into their schema right mm-hmm. and then you know cuz look what is, okay you're an anthropologist yes, let sir. me let me ask you a question what's up how do you define culture? What is culture? Oh, man. Uh, so we talked about this uh, not too long ago with uh, some of my buddies, but um, it's so difficult to define culture. The way I define culture is a sort of conglomerate of a bunch of different things, right? Culture is essentially uh, mythology, cosmology, food, language, ritual. It's all these different aspects of life that come together in, in a certain area that changes over time. The way I understand culture is it not static. It's constantly changing because like you're saying, new things get added. And so, okay, I, I'm a dude and I have all my beliefs and everything that makes me, but then I see something new and then I adopt that newness like you're saying but i still have all these other i still have my past and my history and so i just fuse together i take a little bit from that new stuff and then i take from my old stuff and then other people start doing that and now you know there's been a cultural shift or something so so that's the way i like to look or or define culture right on and and that's that's correct i mean that's not wrong you Mm -hmm. know i mean the textbook definition is like you know the shared system of the shared systems, values, beliefs, traditions, right? Something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 definition that I've stolen, and I don't even remember where I stole it from, <laughs> but it, it's pretty pretty succinct and utilitarian, right? Okay. It it's a good tool. The way I teach it and the way I look at culture, it's the sum of learned behavior. Mm. Right? I love it's, that. The, it's the sum of learned behavior mm. everything that we learn from the time we're born to the time we die contributes to our cultural framework mm-hmm. and you're right it is dynamic it's not static mm. it's not fixed right it's fluid mm. right there's there's this fluidity to it right for sure it you know it's like if i pour my coffee out on the desk it's gonna it's gonna bounce, it's gonna divert, it's gonna flow yep. until it kind of collects and then it's gonna move where it's gonna move to, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's eventually gonna you know stain the concrete, evaporate, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, but you know, it's that's the fluidity of culture, language, right? You mm-hmm. know, language I think is the best way to demonstrate you know, the fluidity of culture, you know, like like you were talking about, you had a professor who would curse and how, you know, I think that, you know, I curse, oh man, I got a mouth. (laughs) Me too. I got to, I got to watch it. I've had students complain about me for cursing, you know, and I'm (laughs) you know, I don't curse because I think it's cool. It's just how I talk. And I believe that we need every word that we have in order to make a point. Now, if you're dropping an F bomb, like and and the it doesn't have the effect or the impact that it has you know if you save it and drop it where it needs to be you know what i'm saying yeah for sure but but, you know when when a professor curses 
you know, people might trip out on that because, you know, that's out of the cultural norm or the box that of expectations of how someone is supposed to act. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. So, yeah. So I think that, you know, the fluidity of culture is best demonstrated with language. And when I teach it, that's how I teach it, you know, but, but I think that, you know, culture as the sum of learned behavior means that as people move around and they take their culture with them, right. To, you know, reiterate the point that I had just made a couple minutes ago mm-hmm. is that, you know, even this conversation, like when you are talking to me about, even when you told me that, you know, there was like this historical periodization of cars and I'm like, immediately that triggered the damn, I should do the taxonomy, right? Your comment influenced me in that way. That reshuffled my cultural deck, even if it's to mm. move that much, it still affected me and it still affected change into my overall being in terms of my cultural fra- fabric. Yeah. You know what I mean? Wow. Wow. Dude, you got so much knowledge to share, bro. This is is incredible. This this is absolutely incredible. I just think about this stuff a lot. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, I live in my head. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm grinding my grill, you know, (laughs) with my Dremel tool, doing the fine, you know, precise, you know, that I don't have any music on or nothing. I'm just in my thoughts, you know, thinking about low riding as as you're building your low riders that, that, that's what's up brother hey um i want to give people a chance um to to follow you on instagram or your social media or whatever so if sure. you could please um shout out your um social media handles go ahead right on so i only have one okay. and it's it's at low ride underscore x underscore worldwide if you just look up low ride worldwide you'll see this logo and you'll, you'll see me and, you know, my, you know, my, my stuff up there. And, you know, it's a little bit of everything, you know, it's, you know, I try to post my original content, but some stuff, you know, I, our reposts, you know, all of the Japan stuff pretty much is mine. Um, but if something is pretty inspirational, I'll throw it up there too, you know, but, uh, you know, that's where a lot of the stuff is. Cool. Yeah. You got some amazing photos. You also have some, some sort of podcasts, um, some Instagram podcasts that you've done as well with some, uh, pretty cool people, the homie Fern, you did Esteban Oreo ride and a couple of other, um, big names. So be sure to check out John's Instagram. Um, I'll also put up a link, um, that way, you know, anyone following Anthro the homies, they can Anthro for the homies could then uh, link to John's page and they could get plugged in with you that way. That way we could keep up um, with your builds. We could keep up with your photos. We could keep up with your book um and like i said i'll be sure to um i'll be sharing john's instagram um as soon as your your, your book comes up please let me know dude um <laughs> sounds, sounds pretty cool it sounds super super cool um you know no no rush i know it's a big task tackling a book dude like that's insane well you know it's like you know for, i'm also you know i'm married i have two kids 18 and 10 you know my family takes up a lot of my time I teach a lot. I have hundreds of students. You know, my classes are really big. So, you know, I'm grading a lot. I'm interacting with my students a lot. You know, it's different than, you know, you know, a, a research one institution like a Berkeley or a Stanford, yeah. you know, yeah. where you know you teach, you maybe teach a class or you show up, but mostly you're there to research. Mm-hmm. I teach community college and that's direct student engagement. 
And that takes up a ton of my time, you know, and then with COVID, you know, I'm teaching and, you know, building the car at the same time. So it's, you know, writing has completely taken a backseat. So yeah, understood, dude. But in the meantime, you're posting lots of amazing, amazing content um, on Instagram. And like I said, dude, I really hope we could do this again. There's a million questions that I, I, I only got to the first page of my question book. Like I got, I got a, a question, a page and a half more to go. Um, but being that you're an anthropologist, um, aside from the low rider stuff, um, I got a couple of questions that I like to ask every guest um, when wow. they when they come on. Um, you could be, you know, you could give me one word answer if you want or you could go into it you could go um as deep into it as you want but i have two big questions um one of them is uh where do you think people in general are headed in our evolution like what where do you see us in 10 years 20 years 30 years 50 years what do you think about that man you know that's a great question and the answer is i don't know and i'll (laughs) And I'll tell you why I don't know. Um, my crystal ball's in the shop. No, I'm <laughs> you know, um, I think that COVID is a very interesting thing in terms of anthropological and human development. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. I, I think that we, you know, there's an evolution to, you know, we have to remember something that you know viruses mutate right for sure and you know for people that don't know what a mutation is it's a change Mm -hmm. it's an adaptation Mm -hmm. right and this virus is a is a living entity and there's a mutation there are changes that those viruses that any virus makes in order to survive so early on in this, um, I have a friend who's also an anthropologist and she's a nurse. Okay. And I'm like, all right, we were at her kid's graduation party. And I'm like, all right, lay this on me. Is, is this some real shit or what? Or is this just some CNN, Fox, you know, let's sell Metamucil. Political you know? battle type bullshit. Or, or you're right. And she was like, no, she was like, this is real. And, you know, what we have to remember is the mutation factor. You know, now there's talk of a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not a medical anthropologist. I'm not a biological anthropologist. Mm-hmm. But what I do know in terms of my working knowledge of biology is that, you know, the vaccine is being developed very quickly mm-hmm. and we are going to be encouraged to take it. But what we don't know, and this gets to your question, where are we going to be down the road? I don't know. Because I don't know, you know, what the what the numbers are going to be in terms of, you know, just the Darwinian, right? Just the, the you know, how, you know, this is part of our evolution as a species mm-hmm. of how, you know, people who are going to live through COVID, right? And then live through the vaccine or not is going to is going to shake out. So anthropologically speaking, we're living in some very interesting times just in terms of an evolutionary standpoint. For sure. Right? We, got, we got a curveball. We got a genetic evolutionary curveball with this virus now. Right. And when you think about the people that are dying, then you have to look at, okay, who's dying, right? The, you know, the demographics of who's dying. Mm-hmm. And you have to look at the medical 
in, you know, the, the systemic medical inequalities, access, access to testing for sure. Um, potable water. And I'm not talking about just the United States. I'm talking about global worldwide, right? of course, but, but these aren't, these aren't, these aren't COVID issues as much as they are greater, you know, uh, equality issues just in terms of, I mean, like there's places in the world, I mean, damn, historically in our own country, like in the Chesapeake, mm. it was safer to drink whiskey and beer than it was water. <laughs> wow. because there was no potable water source. Jesus. Drinking the water would kill you. Jesus. You know, and, and that is the, you know, that's why Coca-Cola is the world's m most popular drink because potable water is not the reality of the world wow but a coca but that coke um symbol that or coke machine or something often can be found in places where they don't even have this 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 potable water right wow right. So it's, it's you know so the question is a big one it's a good one it's just that i don't know how this is gonna shake down in terms of human evolutionary standpoint wow you know? wow yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, I was not expecting that answer, dude. Wow, <laughs> that's, a, that's a fucking amazing answer. Um, unfortunately, it's a it's a very honest answer for the sign of our times, right? Our current zeitgeist, what we're what we're what we're going through. Um, but, the other thing too, if I may, of course. I don't know. You know, are we all going to end up going blind from being attached to our phones and looking at screens? you know, in such close proximity, you know, are we going to get, are we going to develop brain cancer like crazy yeah. from the shit to our head all the time? All this heat and radiation constantly I, next to our brain. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, but you know, when I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember life before the internet, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, it, like somebody posted the other day about, Hey, remember when, the, when you could call somebody and hang up on them and they didn't know it was you calling, right? <laughs> well, so, know, I mean, so simple, but holy fuck. Like what was the last time that happened? It doesn't happen. Right. I mean, I rem I remember, I remember I used to work in a music store when I was in my, t when I was a teenager and in my early twenties. When music and stores I existed. <laughs> But I was like, I sold drums. That was my job in the music store. I ran the drum department. And I remember my boss getting really excited about the fact that he had sent a fax to Europe. Oh, fuck. And that was like a big deal. Like, whoa. Like, <laughs> so I don't know where we're going to be 20 years from now. Yeah. You know, yeah. I really, on the one hand, it's an exciting thought. On the other hand, and it's an incredibly frightening one. Of course, especially with um, how fast stuff can change, how fast culture can change, right? How fast culture can shift. We talked about that earlier. And I think people have these misconceptions that like, oh, this stuff takes a long period of time. But like, look at how much our the world has changed in just this past year alone. So I can't yeah. even imagine, you know, a few years from now. Um, being that this is an anthropology podcast, um, my last question for you would be, What's your favorite thing about people or your favorite person? Or do you just hate people? <laughs> if you do, that's well, cool too, man. But yeah, if you want to tell me like, what's your favorite thing about people? Or if you just have a, like a favorite person in general, either one of those are cool. Man. 
You know, people amaze me. People frustrate me. <laughs> people anger me. People excite me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm always very curious about mm-hmm. people and our species. And in other words, all that say, you know, for the homies, people trip me out. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and that's why I've dedicated my life to studying them. Right. Mm, you know, same. I always, I always like when we talk about primatology, mm. right? Study of primates. The study of primates. And when people study non-human primates to better understand humans, <laughs> that's dumb. <laughs> so, not sorry, primatologists. <laughs> you know, but I mean, if Respect. you're gonna to better understand human beings why not study human beings for sure i don't look i don't need to know what a chimpanzee is doing to get a better understanding about what my neighbor's doing (laughs) yeah why don't i ask my neighbor what they're doing and then i'll get a better understanding about what they're for sure you know what i mean yeah so you know i've always been curious about people i've always like i've always had this burning why 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 I was fortunate enough at a young age to be encouraged to talk to people mm-hmm. and to ask questions. My parents, my parents really, really instilled that in me, right? My grandfather always told me, you can never learn too much. And that was always, wow. that drove my education to this day. You yeah. know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 48 years old and I'm learning how to weld because I'm still trying to build my knowledge base. You know, it's never over. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, you know, that's why I, I became an anthropologist because I've always been fascinated by culture and and societies and how people organize and how people do things. And the fascinating thing is like, you know, making the connections because at the end of the day, we all breathe air. Nobody's better than each other. You know, we, you know, if, if you strip the exterior, we all have veins, muscle tissue, bones, you know, blood, we're all human beings. And it's, it's fascinating to see like the other day when we were working on my grill, mm-hmm. the homie, that was helping me, the hell, the homie, that was helping me. We were getting a measurement and we were getting at 30 was the measurement, but I'm like, Hey man, you gotta, you know, you gotta account for 30. And he looked at me and this is a homie, like a homeboy. Okay. And he goes, Wills, that's what I'm doing. And I'm like, okay, but he was getting 15 twice from the middle. And I'm like, oh, snap. The way he's measuring the bar is actually a more accurate measurement than the way I'm just thinking broad 30, right? So it was just fascinating. Like like I learned something like that changed, that reshuffled my cultural framework because I'm like, okay, he's getting at 30, but in a more accurate and precise way, you know? And I, and I think that that's, you know, just that I look, I look at every day as an opportunity to build my cultural framework and improve on my knowledge base. And, you know, I'm always trying to each human interaction. I, I look to, to learn something, you know what I mean? And I think that that's what keeps me going anthropologically speaking, yeah. as far as 
as far as who my favorite person is, I don't know. I mean, like, like that I know or in human history or. Yeah. There's in, it could be, it could be someone, you know, or it could be someone you don't know. And I don't know. I mean, um, my family are, are pretty precious to me. Yeah. Um, I love that. You know, uh, yeah, I, I had a front row seat to both of my son's births. That was, you know, just like, you want to talk about changing your perspective on the world. It's like, man, that little primate just showed up, you know, like, <laughs> and, um, wow. and it, you know, it's amazing, but, um, but, you know, I mean, my family, um, you know, I, I really look for inspiration from all directions. Um, and so I, that, that makes it difficult to have one singular favorite. There are many, many people that have inspired me in many different ways, be it my parents, my grandparents, um, you know, car builders, professors, you know, um, you know, a person on the street that's got a good hustle, you know, it's just, you know, it, it all comes from so many different directions. It's hard to pinpoint one favorite person. I think that human history demonstrates um, some amazing, amazing things, you know, and, um, you know, this, you know, this young lady, her name escapes me, the girl, you know, that stood up for climate change, you uh, know, Greta, Greta Thunberg, I believe. Yeah. You know, I mean, one, you know, when, when there are so many young people spitting pendejadas, you know, <laughs> that, you know, and then you, you have somebody who is really going on that global level that's saying, hey, you know, what about us and our future? You know, I think that, you know, where we're going to be in 20 or 30 years as a species, if we have more youngsters like that, I think we'll be good. When we have complacency um, as a person who's aging rapidly, um, I shudder to think what's going to happen with the younger generation that's responsible for taking care of me. You know what I mean? So, yeah. but that's kind of scary not me back that's not me bashing youth. That's me. That's a call to action that we need more conscious youth. You know what I mean? We need, we need more movement in that regard and less complacency. Yeah. Hell yeah. Respect it. I sure. That was so beautifully put. I'm glad I recorded this shit so you could go back and listen to it and be like, Hey, I said some good stuff. Cause that was so beautifully said. And I share a lot of your same sentiments, which is why I asked that question about people, because I yeah. too am fascinated. I'm inspired by people. People piss me off too. <laughs> and I'm annoyed by people and there's stupid people out there. But I think as anthropologists, like the whole reason why part, the big reason why we do this is because it's sent around people and it answers those questions of why you know why are we this color why do i do this why do i act like that so i really really appreciate you coming on man i super appreciate you sharing all your knowledge and expertise with me and um i hope that this is the first of many to be quite honest there's a million things i know i could pick your brain about um let's do it let's do any anytime anytime any last words you want to say before we head out before i push uh stop recording this I just want to thank you for doing this. I think it's really important. I, you know, anthropology as, as a discipline, as academic subject matter has historically gotten a bad rap, um, mm -hmm. rightfully so, because anthropologists have really sold out historically, anthropologists have sold out, 
um, people that they've studied or people that they've been, you know, gathered, uh, trust from, or, you know, have been, been, um, you know, trusted with people's lives and livelihood and, and, and day-to-day, um, sacred aspects of people's lives and whatnot, and then, um, have sold it out. Um, I love what you're doing. I love the premise of the podcast, um, because at the end of the day, you know, all of this ought to be accessible for everybody. And it shouldn't just be for some elite ivory tower circle where, you know, people are, you know, drinking, you know, brandy out of snifters, like, oh, oh, oh the native charming. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, this is, you know, because anthropology is the study of people. Therefore, it should be for people. Yes, sir. And- Every man, you know, it doesn't, it, it's, you know, I mean, I can code switch. I mean, I could walk into a room and, and, and talk the game, you know what I mean? But I'm way more comfortable in the, in this realm, man. And so I wish you nothing but success in all of your endeavors, man, professionally with the podcast. I hope this thing blows up ginormously wow. for you. So wow. for us. Yeah. Sick. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. That's an incredible note to end on. So, um, man, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm, I'm humbled and honored, man. Thank you. What's up, folks? I really hope you enjoyed that episode because I know I did. It was a long one, but man, after that conversation, I was so juiced. Thanks, John. Thanks for that. It was a really amazing conversation. If you guys liked what you heard, please, please, please don't forget to hit subscribe. Leave me a review. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Did you like it? Did you hate it? Was it just okay? Let me know. And if you could please tell five of your friends about Anto for the homies, that would be great. You guys will help me get the word out about this podcast and then I can keep doing some amazing episodes for y'all. So thanks so much for tuning in, folks. Tune in for the next episode. Peace, everybody.